I know that the convention in Charlottesville is to start a public address with a reference or citation of Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> but if you will uh, permit me, I will take my citation from a source that I think under our special circumstances is of equal authority, namely Fredson Bowers. My quotation is taken from a speech that Bowers delivered in 1966 on the education of rare book librarians, which was published under the title Bibliography and Modern Librarianship. Bowers at the time was more than a decade and a half beyond the point when he had published the principles of descriptive, uh, of bibliographical uh, description, was chairman of the English department here at the University of Virginia, was at work on a critical bibliography of restoration plays and had already ventured into editing classic 19th century works of American literature. The passage that I quote starts with Bowers emphasizing the importance to scholarship of rare book libraries. The only true source for fresh research on the frontiers of knowledge lies in the special collections housed in the rare book division of the library and every scholar knows it. The rare book division houses the primary materials for scholarship. The secondary books, the reprints, the critical works, the files of learned journals, the reference series can be found almost anywhere, especially in these days of offset printing. That 500 researchers may busy themselves in the general collection for the one who reads in the rare book room means little when quality, not quantity, is the criterion. I am conscious that technology will soon disseminate the transferred images of rare books to every hamlet in the nation in some form of microfiche, microfilm, Xerox, television, or whatnot. Though the images may multiply, the books remain, and their collection and organization will prove to be even more of an art when the consequences of misinformation are multiplied by the forthcoming wave of popularization. Indeed, if the rare book librarians do not protect the more in innocent students and scholars of the future from the snares of microfilm or its successors, who will? I nearly jumped out, uh, continuing uh, with Bowers, I nearly jumped out of my chair, he said, a few years ago when in Virginia I was co collating some microfilm ordered from the library of a prominent Eastern University. Since it seemed that I had come upon a whole reset sheet in the second edition of a Dryden play, never previously noticed. But checking my films of the third and fourth editions indicated that the sheet was actually from the fourth edition. Inquiry then established, not that the sheet had been bound in to make up a defective second edition. Instead, the rare book curator, knowing that the copy of the edition was defected, defective, had very kindly, in his view, requested the film laboratory to fill up the gap from the next edition he had in order that I should be able to read the whole text. Possibly the kingdom of heaven is made up of such innocence, but I hope not. <laughs> Continuing, I grant that scholars should know their business, but the fact is that the average literary scholar has little idea of the methods of bibliography and its findings 
and he is therefore almost completely dependent upon those whom he must regard as the experts, the rare book librarians, correctly to organize the primary materials with which he works. How well trained for this function is the average rare book librarian? I recall some years ago writing to the Library of Congress rare book room to ask for a check on the press variant forms of two copies of the same edition of an early 17th century book by George Sands. I supplied this, the signature identification in the variant words. When the reply came back, it was evident that the person charged with answering did not know how to find a page on which the signature was not printed. At the very start of my investigation of restoration plays, I asked the Union Catalog, he, he's referring to the National Union Catalog at the Library of Congress, of course, I asked the uh, Union Catalog for the holdings of American libraries that reported their acquisitions of rare books. The results were so jumbled and inaccurate as to be worse than useless. Facsimiles, even microfilm copies, were listed as regular editions. Dates were meaningless. Ghosts abounded. It was evident that most libraries reporting to the catalog their rare book acquisitions scarcely knew how to identify a book in the most elementary sense. Bowers concluded, life is short and art is long to learn. <laughs> the question that Bowers posed, how well trained for his or her function is the average rare book librarian, is a valid one to ask of every generation of curators <coughs> excuse me, and rare book librarians. What, what are you doing to protect the more innocent students and scholars of the future? And the average literary scholar who has little idea of the methods of bibliography and its findings. I had occasion to revisit the landscape surveyed by Bowers last year when I sent a letter to some 40 rare book librarians, curators, and heads of special collections asking them to report bibliographical information about a book that I am working on. As the responses came in, I realized their connection to the issues raised by Bowers and that the results of my survey were worth sharing, hence this paper and its title, Mail Order Bibliography. Normally, in reporting the results of a survey, one acknowledges the help of one's collaborators. But under the circumstances, my respondents shall today remain anonymous. In my letter, I asked for a, re a report of some features of a late 18th century American legal manual entitled The New Virginia Justice, comprising the office and authority of a justice of the peace in the Commonwealth of Virginia by William Waller Henning, attorney at law, published by subscription in Richmond, Virginia in 1795. Two copies of the title page of this book are among your handouts. My interest in this book originated in the fact that it was published by subscription because I have a larger study underway of publishing by subscription in 18th century America. And that is uh, the British North American colonies and what became the United States. This paper is not a report of my larger study nor of my research on the new Virginia justice, but to provide a context 
for the report of my mail survey, I will say a few words here about publishing by subscription in Henning's book. Books were sold in the British North American colonies and later in the, in the United States in the 18th century through four modes of distribution. Over the counter by the printer or a retail bookseller, by auction, by traveling bookseller or peddler, and by subscription. The word subscription in the sense understood in the 18th century book trade is defined in the 1728 edition of Ephraim Chambers' Cyclopedia. Quote, subscription in the commerce of books particularly signifi signifies an engagement a person enters to take a certain number of copies of a book going to be printed and the reciprocal obligation of a bookseller or publisher to deliver the said copies on certain terms. Thus, the essence of publishing and bookselling by subscription in the 18th century was an agreement between someone who undertook to issue a book and someone who agreed to buy it. This agreement was based on a public proposal, the terms of which were assented to before publica publication of the book. In the 19th century, subscription, book selling, and publishing became something different that does not concern us here. Subscription book selling in the 19th century became a method of selling books already published directly to buyers by traveling agents or by mail, rather than through bookstores with payments often made in installments. Proposing a book by subscription, because it provided a means of calculating the risks of publication, helped decide the question of whether putting a book to press would be worthwhile. In England, by the last quarter of the 17th century, booksellers were regularly using subscription as a method of publishing expensive books, and authors began promoting the subvention of their publication through publications through subscriptions. In the 18th century, the subscription mode came to be used for all kinds of books. In, no in British North America, by the middle of the 18th century, proposals for the publication of books by subscription were commonplace and the use of the subscription method increased steadily throughout the 18th century, except as disrupted by the revolution. What determined that certain books were published or were proposed for publication by subscription and others were not? My investigations have established that the choice of the subscription mode of publication was not related directly to the subject matter of a book, its authorship, the intended printer or bookseller, or even to the intended audience of the book. The decision related to particular conditions that prevailed in the market or were thought to prevail at the time a particular book was considered for publication. The decision was fundamentally an entrepreneurial one. Some books that were published by subscription contain a printed list of the, name, of the names of the subscribers, and it is these lists that are the most immediately attractive feature of books published by subscription. There is indeed an enchanting quality about these lists, especially when we can recognize who the people are. It has been remarked that looking for familiar names in subscription lists takes on the same thrill as spotting friends in a concert audience. 
The discovery of a list of subscribers while holding a book in hand confers a special personal quality on it. This book, we realize, was actually bought by these people. Extracts of Henning's list of subscribers' names are among the, uh, your handouts, along with a copy of the book label in two subscribers' copies of the book. If there is one thing, though, that you remember from this paper about 18th century publishing by subscription, I hope it is the fact that publication by subscription and the presence of a list, list of subscribers' names in a book are not equivalent. All books that contain a list of subscribers were, of course, published by subscription, but all books that were published by subscription do not contain a list of subscribers. I have identified some 200 subscription lists in books printed in 18th century America, but many times that number of books can be identified as having been published by subscription during the same period in America. A list of subscribers' names is, in fact, a relatively rare feature of a book published by subscription. How did a book subscription enterprise work? Henning's New Virginia Justice of 1795 provides as good an illustration as any book. On Tuesday, May 6, 1794, an advertisement appeared in John Dixon's newspaper, the Virginia Gazette and Richmond Chronicle, proposing the printing by subscription of the New Virginia Justice. And simultaneously, the same proposals were circulated in a separately printed broadside. Henning, in, a, in an address to the public in these proposals, pointed out the need for a new manual for, uh, for justices of the peace. Quote, since Mr. Stark's Virginia Justice first made its appearance, and here Henning refers to his predecessor Richard Stark's manual that was published in Williamsburg in 1774. Um, since, since Mr. Stark's Virginia Justice first made its appearance, our government itself has underwent, his word, uh, a radical change, and he's referring, of course, to the revolution, uh, period. Innumerable statutes more suitable to its genius have been enacted and are now particularly engrafted into our body of laws. Yet, no other book relating to the office of a justice of the peace has been in the hands of our, our magistrates except the above mentioned, which, besides the regal style of the precedents, so truly disagreeable to a Republican ear, presents under almost every title some dangerous uh, defect." End quote. Then follow several of what were called conditions of subscribing. First, quote, the work shall be printed on as good type and paper as may be consistent with perspicuity on the one hand, or that moderation which I intend to observe in the price on the other. The second condition was that one-third of the price was payable at the time of, of, of subscribing the balance due on the delivery of the book. Third, quote, the work which will contain not less than 600 pages will be delivered to subscribers in one large octavo volume, handsomely bound and lettered, at the very moderate price of three dollars. Fourth, quote, gentlemen who patronize this undertaking 
shall have their names prefixed to the work as an acknowledgement of the author's gratitude. In other words, the book will contain a list of the names of the subscribers. And finally, the advertisement went on to state where one could enter a subscription. Quote, subscription papers will be lodged with Messrs. Augustine Davis, Thomas Nicholson, Robert Pollard, Thomas Brand, and William Pritchard of the city of Richmond, Timothy Green of the town of Fredericksburg, and generally with the clerks of the several courts in Virginia, end quote. The persons named were newspaper proprietors or otherwise active in the book trade. This same advertisement appeared the following Thursday in a different Richmond newspaper and in the third Richmond newspaper in mid-July. By February 1795, advertisements were appearing in Richmond and Fredericksburg newspapers that requested, quote, gentlemen who hold subscription papers to turn them in. In other words, to return to Henning the names and money of the persons who, ha who had subscribed. On March 26, the publication of the, of the book was announced. What occasioned my further investigation of the publishing history of Henning's New Virginia Justice? First, I was attracted by the importance of the text. The book was fundamental to the administration of justice in late 18th century Virginia, when gentlemen who were not lawyers were expected to play their part in a dispersed legal system. One can see from the list of subscribers' names, which records the domiciles of the subscribers, that the book was bought for use all over Tidewater, Virginia, the Piedmont, and in the western counties, what we now know as West Virginia, and on the frontier in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Ohio. I knew that the new Virginia justice was, for, the late, 18th century, for late 18th century Virginia, a major publishing enterprise. Although the book is a standard size octo octavo of 560 pages, at least 1,500 copies of it were printed on the evidence of the number of names and copies, uh, and copies taken that are recorded in the list of subscribers' names. The fact that the printing of the book was shared by two printers in Richmond, as revealed by the two imprints in the book, and the fact that the paper used for the book is variegated, some laid, some wove, some of the laid paper watermark, some not, are two pieces of evidence that the production of the book strained the resources of the Richmond book trade. Happily, the advertisements of the book are especially illuminating. One of the persons whose name I read you among those advertised as holding the, sus the subscription papers for the book, Thomas Brand, is well known as a Virginia bookminder, suggesting the brand could have been contracted to bind copies of the book. But re most remarkably, the advertisement announcing the publication of the book names another person, Alexander Curry, a bookbinder about whom very little is known as the actual binder of the book. The publication announcement also even reveals that there was a pre-publication issue of the book. Some books, it states, have been delivered to satisfy the solicitations of individuals in an unfinished state. This is precious information. Like Bowers, I nearly jumped out of my chair when I discovered these advertisements. Working further with a the book then, I discovered that the title page exhibits a, mis a misprint, 
which I have discovered is corrected or not in various types of ways in various copies. That's why you have two copies of the title page among your handouts. They show two different uh, states. Then I began seeing the book in a limited number of standardized bindings. It seemed to me that I might be able to correlate the physical features of the book, textual contents, paper, binding, and the state of the title page to establish a history of how it was issued. Perhaps, too, I could establish something solid about two 18th century American book binders by associating specific bindings with them. To achieve those results, I needed information about as many copies of the new Virginia Justice as possible. What did I ask for and what did I get? The letter that I dispatched was in one form or another, the one that you have among your handouts. I say in one form or another because by the end of my survey, I had sent out three slightly different, progressively improved, I think, versions of the letter, not in rational testing phases, alpha, beta, gamma, but rather in waves as I located more copies. So I confess that my survey instrument was not perfect as to consistency. Let's look at the letter. Uh, I explain uh, that uh, what you see here is stripped of my letterhead and signature and the date, and in that it shows only field numbers rather than specific information that would identify an addressee. I have numbered the paragraphs for purposes of reference. Paragraph one identifies my project and the source of my information about the location of the copy in question. Paragraph two is a physical description of the book in the form of a collation by signatures. Paragraph three was meant to restrict reports of textual contents to copies that had not been rebound. Paragraph four lists the textual contents of the book. Paragraph five describes one standard form of binding in which the book is found to provide a basis for comparison. Paragraph six inquires about the provenance of the copy in question, specifically as to whether a former owner's name appears in the list of subscribers' names. And paragraph seven requests a report of the state of the title page. In drafting the letter, I had to decide how to ask for what I wanted and how much justification to provide for the questions that I asked. Should I, for instance, provide a formulaic description of the physical book, or should I provide a description in non-technical words, something that would begin, this book is composed of sheets folded three times and then cut in half, etc., etc. I, of course, chose to use the standard formulaic description. After all, I was writing to custodians of rare books. Then, should I explain why I was asking these questions? I chose to eschew explanation, except to point out in paragraph four that I was looking for different issues of the book. After all, I was writing to service-oriented librarians. So you see that essentially I, was, I asked four questions. One, if you have a copy that has not been rebound, is the contents of the copy as, a, as I have described it? Two, does the binding of your copy correspond to the description that I have provided? Three, is the name of a former owner of your book 
listed among the names of the subscribers, and four, is the misprint on the title page treated? How is the misprint in, on the title page treated in your copy? What did I get as responses? First, as to numbers. I eventually learned of copies of the New Virginia Justice in 49 locations, and I have information from 48 of these locations, a highly satisfying rate of response, even figuring that in some cases I had to make recourse to follow-up letters, and that I gathered the information by personal ins inspection in 10 of the locations. Counting all copies in, in all locations, I now have information about a total of 67 copies, which says a good deal, I think, about the survival of 18th century law books. I received most of the responses by postal mail, but seven locations replied in whole or in part by electronic mail, four locations replied in whole or in part by telephone, two locations replied in whole or in part by form letter, and three locations replied by simply annotating my incoming letter and returning it to me. In most cases, the head of the special collections or rare book department responded to me. In other cases, apparently, if such a person was lacking, I received a response from a reference librarian or public services librarian or a technical services librarian. In one case, I re received a response from an acquisitions assistant, in another from an administrative assistant, and in another from the preservation librarian. One library had a consultant respond to me. He responded from outside the library and returned to me all of the incoming uh, correspondence. So apparently there is no record of my inquiry on file at the library. One library asked me for a donation of money. <laughs> By and large, I received responses that were to some degree useful. In fact, most often they were useful to a high degree. I go on record saying that I am grateful for whatever I got, knowing how busy and understaffed libraries are. All too often, though, I received responses like the following. Quote, I am unfortunately an inadept at bibliographical description other than to cite the major gatherings. Therefore, I shall give you the narrative approach to the makeup of our copy. Sincerely, Curator, Special Collections. Quote, <clears throat> I'm afraid that I cannot help you with identifying the contents description. I am new in the profession. Sincerely, Special Collections Librarian. Quote, I am not particularly confident of my abilities to describe collation especially where printed symbols are lacking. Although I function as a rare book cataloger here, my previous cataloging experience was in music, and my background is in preservation, where we were always less concerned with such description. Sincerely, rare book cataloger. Quote, the collation of our copy agrees with your copy, but please explain the formula to me. Sincerely, Special Collections Librarian. Can you, can you take any more? <laughs> Quote, 
caught, exclamation point. I was in a bit of a rush to get your query answered, so when I dis discovered that our cataloging of Henning did not include a collation, I took the easy way out and said nothing. In my heart, of course, I knew you had recorded the collation for a reason. Well, having saved my time last week, I've caused you to send another inquiry and had to collate the book after all. I have now collated the copy, and yes, it is the same as yours. Sincerely, Associate Special Collections Librarian. Quote, the library has no rare book person on the staff at present, but pagination, collation, and contents appear to be substantially as you report. <laughs> Yours truly, reference librarian. Quote, the collation doesn't match what you sent us. Apparently, our copy is a different edition. Sincerely, Assistant Director for Public Services. Fortunately, this library sent me enough photocopies that I could determine that their copy is, in fact, an imperfect copy of the 1795 edition. Quote, I could not recall the correct bibliographic terms to use to describe the various things you asked about. I am sorry if my description is unclear. Sincerely, Technical Services Librarian, Law Library. P.S. The head of special collections in the main library wanted you to know that they don't have anything that looks like your binding descriptions. <laughs> hmm. Then there was a library that forwarded my letter to the law library where the 1795 edition of Henning is held and kindly sent me an elaborate description of the binding of a different edition. Then there was a library that answered my questions simply by sending me a copy of the local catalog record. Unfortunately, the local catalog record ignores the list of subscribers' names in the collation by signatures and in the collation by pages. It mentions it, though, in a note. Then there was a library that reported a description of one copy but concealed the fact that the rare book department holds five copies. When I discovered that they had four more copies than they had reported during a subsequent visit to that library, I nearly fell, fell out of my chair. Then there was a library that wrote, quote, the library's rare book cataloger notes the collation as follows, a more simple collation than yours. Sincerely, curator of manuscripts and rare books. I refer you to exhibit A, in your handouts. And for connoisseurs of signature collations to two other collations that I was furnished. Uh, exhibit A, the simpler collation, I won't go into the details, but in effect, conceals the presence of three out of the 35 gatherings in the book, assures the impossibility of referring accurately to any place in the book, erroneously suggests that a component of the book is duplicated, etc., etc. Uh, exhibit B. Uh, to begin with, there is an underlying confusion between pages and leads. Exhibit C is a more sophisticated version. 
This is, was written by a person who has forgotten the conventions of descriptive bibliography. There are a number of problems in it, but the worst problem is that an erroneous analysis of the first text gathering was made. Finally, there was a library that told me the following. Yes, by policy, we collect exhaustively the type of book about which you inquired. But, quote, we are not set up to answer the type of question that you raised, unquote. With the utmost of graciousness, though, the library offered to send me the book on interlibrary loan. And with mixed feelings, I accepted the offer. <laughs> what has been the effect on me of conducting this survey? In a word, it has been unsettling. <laughs> Clearly, the knowledge of books as artifacts runs thin in some places. And by no means are all of these places out of the way. I have not named the names of my correspondents, but you can be sure that they include responsible persons in libraries with major holdings of rare books, even in what uh, are referred to as some of the great Eastern libraries. But if I de deplore ignorance on the one hand, I must praise honesty on the other. Those who were, who were brave enough to confess <coughs> ignorance at least willed no deception. Well, what about the many reports that I received stating simply that such and such a library's copy was, I, was as I had described? Can I trust these reports? Are these respondents competent to confirm identity? Or have these libraries simply washed their hands of the problem? Is this a condition trying to approach don't ask, don't tell? Remember the library that reported one copy and concealed the existence of four others? Depressing thoughts. What are a researcher's rights and, and the custodian's obligations? My position, of course, is that a researcher has a right to ask the kind of questions that I asked, and that custodianship of rare and precious materials imposes an obligation to respond knowledgeably and intellig intelligently to such questions. And what about interlibrary loan? Will it do for a library in a new liberal age to simply send a book off to a, an inquirer on interlibrary loan? I think not. While I selfishly agreed to accept that arrangement, I cannot help worry about the possibility that another researcher might have traveled to the holding library to use the book there while I had it elsewhere. I think of libraries of rare materials as repositories of permanent reference, where one always can count on finding the holdings in place. Well, what of the larger view? We are blessed in this country with a truly wondrous national bibliographic system. The National Union Catalog, now virtually of yore, our national bibliographic databases and our online texts and catalogs. What is the implication of this system other than that a commonwealth of learning has been achieved, a commonwealth in which every hamlet in the nation participates, 
a commonwealth in which both librarians, the custodians of our resources, and researchers, the users, participate. But true, in the commonwealth of learning, as in every commonwealth, there are weak nations as well as strong nations. Life is short and art is long to learn, to quote Powers. Perhaps I should content myself with the thought that in, in our commonwealth, there is a sort of world bank available to lend assistance, rare book school, if you will. Well, that is my final thought, but I have a coda to play out. Perfection is perhaps not to be achieved in bibliographical surveys as it is not to be achieved in other pursuits of life. You will remember my one holding library as yet unrespondent. I am tempted to leave it resting, unrespondent as it is, as an emblem of the imperfectibility of human endeavor. But on the other hand, if someone wants to venture deep into Westchester County, collation in hand, please see me later. <laughs>